Before I started recording this powerful conversation with Rosaline McDonough, she rightly bashed me for not reading her book, Unsettled, which was published last year. I can now say that I have read it and I'm blown away. Commenting on a piece of work like this is so hard because so often I was left utterly speechless. But the manner in which she describes the injustices she experienced as a traveller woman with cerebral palsy is profound. Even more profound is her pride and love of herself and her family and community. I can't think of a book that forced me to pause and contemplate after each chapter quite like this. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that it's a miracle that Rosaline is still here and I'm so glad that she is. For those unfamiliar, Rosalie McDonough is an Irish playwright, performer and columnist for the Irish Times. She holds a BA, two masters in philosophy from Trinity College and a PhD from Northumbria University in the UK. She is a board member of the Pavy Point Traveller and Roma Centre and was appointed a human rights commissioner in 2020. This intense podcast covers grief, the shadow side of activism, the role James Baldwin's work played in Rosaline's development as a human, but also as a writer. We also discuss Rosaline's relationship with her cerebral palsy, the hierarchy present within the overarching mental health discussion, the impact of othering that travellers experience on their mental health, and much more. She also gave perhaps the most touching combination of ways she takes care of her mental health that we've had so far in the podcast. This is undoubtedly undoubtedly one of the most memorable conversations I've had over the last few years and I thank Rosaline a lot for her time and kindness. Her book Unsettled is in all good bookstores and you can find her Twitter find her on Twitter with the link below. Thanks for listening friends. All the best. Rosaline thanks for so much for agreeing to come on to the podcast. What's the crack? How are you keeping? Well the winter is over. <laughs> Me too. And I love spring. Yeah, it's beautiful. And summer. And I think I'm in a good place. I've lost one of my friends recently. That was hard. But I'm okay. I appreciate you coming on so close to so soon after the funeral, how much it's very difficult? Yeah, I've buried a lot of people. So I'm wondering, am I numb or numbed up or in there? No, I, I cried, but I feel that I haven't cried. Enough? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I felt that before as well. Like, I worried that am I feeling it as much as I should feel it? But then before the funeral, I had to do a bit of work for the funeral and that means that. Yeah, yeah. So that means probably helping my life. Like helping you kind of process it, yeah? I can imagine, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I just want to, I do appreciate you coming so soon after, thanks. Um, I don't know, it's like a, it's a weird, such a weird time as well, because there's no way you can go back to anything that can be considered normal, but you're still trying to 
focus on things to do, like, you know what I mean? It's a difficult part. Well, then I think that is normal. That's the new normal? Uh, no, I think that is normal. Ah, yeah. Or it should be normal. Yeah. And our responses to that. Do you think that we have this kind of expectation or like a blueprint for how you should feel after a loved one has passed? I mean, I don't have children. Mm-hmm. And I live a very single life. No, I, I don't have to give anything to anyone mm-hmm. emotionally. Mm-hmm. Or psychologically, every day I don't have. Well, I think people who have children to look after or after, their grief gets managed in a different way. Okay. Whatever. If I feel sad, I feel sad. Uh-huh. I can stay in bed. I can look out the window. You know. Yeah. I mean, I may have deadlines. I may have whatever conventional things to do, but I. Grief, like everything else. It's such a varied emotion. Totally. Part of me thinks as well, your reaction to death, to the death of a loved one, might also uh, represent how you, where are you in terms of accepting your own death, right? Like, I'm a big fan of George Harrison. And, um, I, my friend was telling me that when John Lennon died, uh, George Harrison and Ringo were interviewed shortly after, and um, I think it was they asked Ringo what did he do when they heard John Lennon died, and Ringo said, "Oh, I was in I was in Costa Rica or somewhere tropical, and I just got on the first flight home just to see if there's anything going on," and then they asked George Harrison what happened when when you heard John, he says it was in the middle of the night. We got a call. I was told John Lennon passed away. And I took a moment and I went back to bed. And to me, or maybe a lot of people would consider like that's so selfish or inconsiderate. But part of me thinks that that's George Harrison. That's where he's at accepting of death, that him and John Lennon were were quite spiritual men. And and George said, here, me and John believe that that he's on a different plane of existence, right? And that... and this is part of life, this has to happen. Between the years of 2015, 
that you had was so strong and the fact that then you you lost that person that it then changed how you looked at existence right wow or if the person is a family member that that must assume that that this is the reaction you might have if they yeah but really if this person is just or I say just a friend but the connection you had was profound and you helped each other grow that 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 loss hit you in a way that the other losses couldn't touch wow and and now do, do you look at death differently? Yes. I probably feel that differently. Uh. I hope it's basically more mindful, more emphasis. Okay. There's no one that's grieving. Okay. I'm not sure it has, but I hope. I remember being trapped in grief. Yeah. I don't know. 
Jarvis Cocker. Yeah, in a band. Okay. Uh, it was. You've been snobby about tattoos? Well, I know they were fashionable, okay. but snobby and I always been aware in the death camps in Germany, uh-huh. Hitler, tattoos, where have you identified? Ah, uh, yeah. And I could never... Shift? 
feel like he was always with you, right? Yeah. Mm. That's beautiful. focus on living as if I knew her with with what she taught me and how she how she loved me that she's with me right and that sounds like something similar right that you felt like a part of a part of someone's with you there mm. that's beautiful thanks for sharing that I appreciate it and um, it is a really different emotion. No, yeah, don't. But it's... Yeah, it's... It's devastating when it happens, yeah. No. And I only do the... Secretly? Secretly? Confusion. 
Do you think we're getting close, though? I hope so. Of 
I think it's a good point. I remember thinking a while ago, imagine that we could reach a point where we could communicate to the people that we think we're really angry with. And then imagine if we could just accept or uh, articulate to them, you know what, I'm hurt. What you did there, that hurt me. Or this situation hurt me. And to me, that would just change so many dynamics, right? Because we, we, when you can when you can acknowledge and, and express that I'm hurt, the person is gonna surely most of the time anyway is gonna. I think sometimes we have to supplement or interchange the word hurt for anger. You think so? Yeah. My heart is much more gentler. It's less aggressive. Mm-hmm. People are more available. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I remember actually a good friend of mine, he was telling me about something, a situation that happened to him the day or two beforehand. I remember he told me what, what, what he said really hurt me. And he said, I know a lot of men will say that pissed me off, but it didn't piss me off. It hurt me. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. That we are, we are hopefully that we are collectively moving to a place where we can say it's not all anger. I'm actually a human, and sometimes I'm hurt, you know. And um, I really thought you were in very, very deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were very deep. <laughs> not at all. Uh, for for people that are listening and they want to know a little bit about you, could you tell us a bit about yourself? I I know it's. It's always a, it's a tough question. Um, I'm always late. Mm-hmm. And I won't say what age I am. And <laughs> I'm very vain. <laughs> um, I'm a writer and a member of the progress community. I'm a doctorate. And I... I'm a former punk. Former punk? <laughs> uh, um, I read a lot. I, the reason my voice sounds a bit left to center is I have cerebral palsy, which I know. Mm. I love how my body moves and <laughs> this and works and, and I'm a feminist. I am a playwright. <laughs> right. I've loads of follow up questions. Um but an interesting uh, a reflection you had or a statement where you said you love your cerebral palsy I actually had a question and I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your cerebral palsy oh I don't know I mean I, I 
with the red substance about being human. Yeah. Where everybody's body is different than your own. You're in a busy world and you're stuck. There's a, a, I'm not sure it makes sense. Oh, I think that. And the other thing I would say about ZPS, in my circle of friends, Uh I would always ensure that there's people with impairments. And it's an added bonus if that impairment has or is CP. Okay. I would also say I'm not a sports person. Yeah. I'm small and fat and round. <laughs> but I get great pleasure at disability sport. Cool. At the aesthetic of. They're not trying to emulate the non-disabled body, but it's kind of almost there's a certain pride and boldness in demonstrations in a very public way. This is who I am. Mm. This is my strength. Mm. I've also been lucky enough to have been involved and seen disabled dancers at work. I can tell you, Jim, it does something to me. Wow. I can't dance. My body's quite rigid. Uh-huh. But when I, there's something so feeling that something completely Life, service. Mm. That's beautiful. No, it's just a while to there. And I was lucky I had lovers who were also disabled. Uh-huh. I had CP. Uh-huh. So that was a great foundation in terms of positive body. Yeah. And very affirming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and also, um, you know, we build up or we accrue a certain amount of knowledge and that we don't often verbalize mm. about our bodies and about who we are and what we are. And I think probably because of my CP. I've had to investigate and get to know my body, you know, food, how it works, how I exercise, how I give it pleasure, comfort, how I sleep, you know, how my chair is almost like an armor Mm. protects me. But it also is my perch, my perch. Uh, all those, uh, you know, the body. Uh, it took me a long time to get there, but it was a fascination. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I think, you know, the, 
concerns of trans people uh-huh. is really important. Okay. I think when you actually think about your identity and and your body and embodiment in a real way, I think that's where we we come to a point where we recognise what it is to be human and our humanity Mm. towards others. And can I kind of want to ask about um, in terms of the shared humanity you think that very often unless we have this kind of um, we come face to face with this this challenge of fully accepting our bodies and fully accepting who we are unless we have that process that intense process that you speak about you think it's almost easier for people to kind of lose sight of our collective shared humanity I don't know I think some people don't have to do it okay some people don't want to do it hmm. um, I think if you look at general issues around for example anorexia mm-hmm. or you think of fast fashion mm-hmm. What do you think of bullying? Oh, general, with serious issues. Mm-hmm. The body is all related to those issues, you know. At the centre. Yeah, the body is... The common thread. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of... I mean, don't look at your body. Uh-huh. And I don't mean standing in front of a mirror. Uh-huh. I mean taking time. I'm figuring out what it is to be Jim or what it is to be Rosie's. And and all it's glory or it's mess. No, mm-hmm. I, I, and I think we have to appreciate that everybody can or needs to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And all people like us, because we're outside of the prototype. <laughs> yeah. It's that time to work out what it is. How we, how we live and function. Mm. Mm. It's like an incredibly challenging process. But if you can get the other side, it's so and fruitful. I, I don't know always, and you know, a bit of slipping back. Yeah. Mm. Interestingly, do you find 
you talked about the shared humanity do you do you find yourself somewhat less judgmental than you would have been before of other people before what before you kind of reached this point of kind of oh my god you're missing an ongoing process and it's more aspirational than oh. real okay 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 um, <laughs> I think when I was younger I was impatient okay I was caught up in my own hurt and pain uh-huh. and therefore other people's It doesn't really matter. Okay. Mm. And and as you as you wrestle with this process on the good days, you can you can. Well, it's being conscious, making mm-hmm. an effort. Mm-hmm. Being patient, being generous, and just slowing it all down, slowing everything down. You know, it's funny, it just came to my head. We had a former guest on, Carol Lissette, who, uh, who has anorexia, and she, she mentioned that during her, during her difficult period, that she, that she was like, I was a really bad or a difficult person to be around because almost like you said I was consumed by myself or consumed yeah like in in my own world so I couldn't really consider other people's other people's doubts other people's struggles because I was so in my own struggle I have lived the life of an activist, whether it be feminism, mm-hmm. whether it be problem rights, mm-hmm. whether it be disability rights, mm-hmm. and it's almost, you get lost mm-hmm. in that. Mm. And that's fresh. And you get lost in that solidarity. Mm. The co- a collective solidarity? And then sometimes that's the only way you know yourself. Or, you know, and, and for me, I had to move away. I had to. And uh, I was a really bad activist. You were a bad activist. Yeah. How so? I just wasn't committed. Okay. I wasn't. I wasn't. I didn't enjoy it. Okay. I said, I appreciate what's the women's movement, uh-huh. what's rather politics, uh-huh. what's this I'd rather be at home. Reason the book and me on a march. Mm. I remember recently it was the Eighth Amendment, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and 
turn it up to one of their bedrooms. And, and I remember this was I felt old. I felt that it wasn't quite woke enough. Okay. And I remember listening to a group of young fans mm-hmm. who were, you know, kind of pro choice and whatever. And one of them said to his friend, Well, I don't know from the back paying for a flight, but I don't think I can go with her. And then, you know, if that's where we're at, and if that's what pro or supporting women is, I I had to kind of move aside and kind of think, um, I also feel worn out okay. by activism yeah. and that it was again it was a distraction and I don't mean that in a pejorative way mm-hmm. and I have lots of friends who are very much involved mm-hmm. and I admire and respect mm-hmm. their journey mm-hmm. and, and I would benefit from their hard work mm-hmm. I fully acknowledge I understand, but I also know for me, it was a distraction. A distraction from uh, what? Myself. Okay. I didn't learn to think about I didn't learn to consider. Mm. I didn't take time. Mm. I, it was almost like an ego trip. Wow. Oh, I need a microphone. Even that you had a better way of saying what's been said <laughs> a million times. <laughs> you know, and I'm lucky enough to be involved as a mentor. Younger than. Disabled women, mm-hmm. and these women would be very sharp, mm-hmm. much sharper than I am, you really there. Uh-huh. And when when we won the vote, and when I say we won the vote, I'm talking about the Eighth Amendment, mm-hmm. then it and a month later, Overhands are underhands. They didn't know what to do with their ties. So a lot of them moved into a new cause or a new struggle. Mm. I found it very interesting talking to them and, and listening to them. And again, no judgment, uh-huh. but how activism and a cause. It's like an addiction. Yeah, there's an common distraction. Mm. You know, I I like Carl Jung 
and uh, there's this podcast with a few Jungian analysts I listen to and they talked about how so often they would get people coming into their to their office or to their room and these people are heavily involved in the political fight and they they can't help but feel that they're very angry about the injustice of the political system but underneath that anger is a mountain of anger about what happened in their childhood or about their relationship with their dad or their husband you know and that just came up when you were saying this it was almost like they're angry and they're finding a way in which they can but that's okay that's okay oh yeah no judgment at all no that's very dirty yeah and and like you said we'll we'll benefit from yeah. that hard work that they're doing, absolutely. But for some people like me, it was healthier to get off the... And, and were you the accepted, issue. like, were you accepted by the activists for that take? No. No. Well, no one my friend, my uh-huh. best friend, would have been a well-known disability activist. Uh-huh. The one that told us. And I suppose I would have and his protection. Okay. And, and I get to the stage where you don't care what people say. Mm. I was tired. Mm. There was room for someone else. Mm. And I think my worry was my worry was, I'd look at older feminists, mm-hmm. they always had to be having opinions about stuff. Mm-hmm. They were trans. Mm-hmm. They were radical feminists, like Jeremy Muir, who was anti-trans. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I don't want to be one of those people where I'm real, I'm real left. I'm not really in touch mm. with myself mm. or the humanity of others, mm. and that I'm so consumed in my own ego and being front of stage. And you no, know, and I still write. I still think. In terms of political and politics, mm-hmm. being public, mm-hmm. private or personal, but I don't need, I don't need to be in that race. Mm-hmm. And also there's a lot of egos. Okay. And there's a lot of elbowing each other out of the way. Yeah. And kind of, I had a great time. Mm-hmm. You know, for me it was the center of independent living and it was the formation of a personal assistant service that we didn't have to live in nursing homes, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I was going to college, it was lots of things about access and public transport mm-hmm. and all jobs. And citizenship, when you talk about citizenship, it's a very public and very almost male 
Take the step back. And and just read lovely poetry and listen to music and <laughs> Okay, so can I, uh, what I wanted to ask, and you keep on referring to your love of books and your love of literature, eh? can I ask what was your introduction to this world? When I was in special school, uh-huh. I was in a special class. Okay. No, I, when I was a reader, I was in my late teens. Okay. I went back to the school at night. No, that journey <laughs> took a long time. I can uh, yeah. And also, as a younger woman, mm-hmm. I was very conscious of my speech. Mm-hmm. And I was always being dismissed. And <laughs> nobody understood what I was saying. Mm. Or at least that's what they told me. Mm. And that was something here. Mm. And therefore, reading was a bit like I do on my own. Mm. It's in the mouth. Communicate with somebody else. And also, uh, I had time on my hands. Okay. I wasn't qualified for a job. I wasn't going there, you know. Mm-hmm. And books became the center. You know, it opened me up to my knowledge and, and, and you know, uh, the good opened me up to humanity. Wow. Do you recall a certain a certain book or a certain author really shape, like helping you expand how you look at the world? I remember the first time I read The Colour Purple. The Colour Purple? By Alice Walker. Alice Walker. Alice. That's Alice. And she's an African, an American African writer. Okay. She said that, but it was transformative. It was about racism, it was about sexism, and it was about impairment, James Baldwin. Wow. And I just, and I, everything about his rise, his, his own journey, his own fragility, mm. his own fear, mm. his lack of, I mean, there's one where he talks about being afraid of Martin Luther King. He was afraid of him? I was not because he wasn't manly enough. Oh. And he wasn't that I would ask this. And I completely... Resonated. Uh, yeah, like nobody ever said I was worried about in the presence of other activists of my peers. 
I actually watched the documentary on James Baldwin last week. I don't know if you saw the one that they made when he was in Paris. It was quite short. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this clip that I was just so struck by where he says, he says, we drastically underestimate how much the world is being held by a small amount of people who are bringing love. He says... He says, he says, love is revolutionary. Love is not popular. Look around. And he's like, we really underestimate the small amount of people that are bringing love to, to their daily lives, to their interactions. And I remember thinking, wow. Like, well, I, I love the whole idea of... And being a gay man. At a certain time mm-hmm. in history, mm-hmm. and within that history, it was a civil rights, and he was just so scared. And, and also, we forget, but in those days, to wish or to be loved. Another time, it was really difficult. Mm. Everything was underground, everything was hidden by chance. Yeah, you know, there isn't there was no grinder there. <laughs> no, but no grinder. No, there wasn't. Yeah, no grinder no, there. That kind of uh, isolation. Yeah. And it comes across in his work. Yeah. And I really love how he embraces his vulnerability. Mm. And how he says, Focus, I'm afraid. Mm. I'm really afraid. And he, he tries to. Did did James Baldwin being so uh, expressive of his fears help you, or did that push you into into uh, articulating or expressing some of your fears through writing? Yeah. Yeah. 
But it always reminds me of feeling us so alone. Okay. It also made me realize what I was feeling or what he was feeling is universal. We have this idea that, you know, everything is shiny, healthy, aware, you know, mm-hmm. more, most of us are anxious mm-hmm. and, and worried and vulnerable and, and sad and afraid of being exposed. You know, as all his books are read the writers and playwrights um, and to own my own shit <laughs> and what I mean by that is uh-huh. even if I don't have somebody with an impairment mm-hmm. as a character mm-hmm. the set of the stage it's always a tell-tale sign of who the writer is. The set of the stage? Yeah, you know. Can you expand? For, pe- for say, people that aren't really familiar with plays or theatre. Well, in my last play, it was on the Abbey. Uh-huh. So we had the traveller aesthetic. But you also had two children who were refer to who had disabilities. Okay. So the sense was all accessible. Okay. But nobody knew that only a disabled I would say, Oh, there's no steps. Oh, there's no steps. There's no ladders. There's no I get you. And Maud would allow me in the same way that Tennessee Williams. Yeah. Again, his work is, is profound to me that if you look closely at the set, uh-huh. it's very kitsch and very, very gay. It's very gay? And very kitsch. Very which? Kitsch. Kitsch. 1950. Okay, okay, sorry. Kitsch. Okay. But I'm not a gay person. Uh-huh. But I, I can read. Uh-huh. Because I, I, I... Like you speak the language? <laughs> well, no. No? Because I'm looking for that diversity. Okay. okay. I'm looking for him. Mm-hmm. It is worse. Mm-hmm. And Baldwin allowed that. And therefore he allowed me to always have a reference mm-hmm. to disability or to travellers or to girls. And what would your take be on on authors or playwrights? who don't have a disability, who might be straight, who might be white. Um, I, I mean, they're there. And we built 
that's Hannah. Uh-huh. And for a long time they own it. Yeah. And they prescribe. Uh-huh. And I think... But sorry, do you think that they should also um, kind of draw inspiration from what you're talking about to, to make a stage more accessible? Or is that kind of overcompensating for something that they don't really understand? Well, I suppose they don't have to think about it. They don't have to think about it? And it's not really their job. Now, mm. it would be brilliant if they could give actors with impairments jobs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on stage. <laughs> but they don't. Mm. In the same way that there aren't enough for you or has it happened before where you can resonate with a character that is that is that is white that is able-bodied that is non-traveler that like oh we were all red but just not on a deeper level well they were like a conveyor belt it was like what you studied for exams. Uh-huh. And you know, and they're like, what do you talk about in polite conversations? Mm. <laughs> and they don't really get to the heart. Okay. And, and they're very stylized. Okay. Very safe. Uh-huh. Very conventional. Yeah. And why straight males I find interesting I may not. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, have you watched The Wire? Uh, I watched the first three seasons of The Wire. I loved it. Yeah. And I, I'm nearly sure that was written by a... Two white guys, wasn't uh, it? Yeah. No, you know, uh-huh. um, I think, yeah, I think, I, I, 
Put it this way. Uh-huh. If I am 20 or over a second, uh-huh. and there's a play at the name of my heart, who's not writing about disability, and there's a play about the name of my who's writing about disability, uh-huh. which one? <laughs> <laughs> which one are you going to? Are you asking me? <laughs> <laughs> rhetorical question uh, I, I think oh, sometimes I want to get away from my reality mm. so this strange wise I think is light entertainment okay is that awful I don't think it, I, I mean yeah. I don't I don't think it's awful um. <laughs> but if I want intellectual emotional nourishment and stimulation then I have to go that's outside that's, of the mainstream yeah although for instance um, me and my roommate uh, my roommate who's gay we watched a documentary about like early drag queens in New York and the, the, the documentary is powerful you really get an insight into the difficulty of the poverty first and foremost the difficulty in which the people couldn't find way areas or venues for them to express themselves and and to feel that they could be themselves right and I'm not gay, and I'm, I, and I don't really have an interest in, in, in like, as in, I, I don't watch drag queens or drag performances regularly. Not even, but, not, not even the drag race. Not, not even RuPaul's drag race, no. But I resonated so deeply with that struggle of trying to find a place where I could express myself and be me. You know. And why did you think that one? Because I think like you said like 20 minutes ago there's a, a shared humanity there's a shared but the other thing I had something to do with your friendship and your roommate and that he wasn't this big heterosexual football player that had the nice jokes that you were allowed to read and say this is interesting this is this this doesn't revolt me. This doesn't. You're asking me if yeah. the fact that my roommate was there with me yeah, and it was a it was, place in which I could be brutally honest yeah. and I didn't have to perform to this kind of idea of uh, yeah, masculine kind of oh that's so weird or I think I'm lucky enough honestly to to have friends in my life where. I'm dropping. I'm dropping that kind of expect societal expectation, and I'll be honest. Like I won't say that I like RuPaul's Drag Race so that certain people will think, oh, he's in the know or he's whatever. But equally, I won't just say it's nonsense just because it's not me. It's different, right? That's just from my perspective, and so I think it's interesting that, and I believe. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe a lot of people, um don't have that space that, that that space between you and the content or you and the material and then to go wow that re- that's me 
My two best friends mm-hmm. for over thirty years. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Two lesbian women. Okay. I am looking me hair makeup. You couldn't miss a more a kind of mainstream woman than me. Okay. I would have never learned stuff about what it is to be a woman if I hadn't been in their company. Mm-hmm. If they hadn't corrected me and tutored me and if I hadn't witnessed the injustice mm-hmm. and the shame. Mm-hmm. This is actually something that I wanted to ask you as well. More more related to the traveller community, but... No, I want to go with 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, no problem. No, look at your question. Okay. I think the good one. <laughs> okay. Right. First question. Um, you talked about the importance of having gay friends for you to be open up to the world of what's it like to be gay, right? Um, I don't mean gay friends who are funny and who are a parody of the man. No, no, yeah, like... I'm talking about gay people who are wounded yeah. and shunned uh-huh. and shamed uh-huh. by their parents. Uh-huh. Gay people who are my age who didn't go to the celebration after gay marriage. Too bad they were too old okay. and too hurt and, and were still in fear. That's what I mean about gay friends. I understand. I, I mean, my roommate said something similar. That he says sometimes it's not that he feels, mm, how do I put this, uh, that he has friends that feel like they haven't. Uh, acknowledge their woundedness if you will and they are some somewhat to some extent living up to a parody or living up to a kind of uh, caricature that's it but I watched but it was like for him to avoid the gay bars or to go to gay clubs when they were still on the ground uh-huh. in Dublin. And it was painful. The, the torment, the rejection, the... It wasn't all humour. It wasn't all... Love and acceptance and... No. No, what? I went to his family events as his girlfriend. Because. Because they, they didn't, they would have judged him or they would have rejected him. And, uh, and. You know, no, it wasn't. I understand. I like that. It's still difficult. 
like maybe some someone say, well, there's plenty of, of gay nightclubs or there's plenty of places to go, but unless these nightclubs or these uh, events facilitate you to be you. And also, it's commercialized. Yeah. The pink, mm-hmm. the pink crowd. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like commodified. Yeah. What well, all sexuality is. Yeah. I think it's wonderful that mainstream culture has embraced a culture mm-hmm. in some ways and in some parts of the world and in some communities. Mm-hmm. But it's not all roses. Mm. And it's not all... Mm-hmm. So sorry, I know you're tight on time. I guess I want... I'm not saying it's miserable either. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying that... Homophobia hasn't gone away. No. No. Mm-hmm. It maybe just looks different. Or maybe it doesn't. <laughs> or maybe young people are more brave. Or... Okay. I don't know. Okay. So one thing I wanted to ask was that on your reflection about your friends, I guess I want to ask, do you think that that's an issue between the average settled Irish person and the average Irish traveller is that there aren't... Um, aren't so many you could tell me if there are if you know of any um, events or organisations that are facilitating communication just to learn just to be friends you know like like you say you wouldn't have learned why 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 do we need to be taught how to be friends I mean I think Ireland has a fractured history. Mm-hmm. I think I'm in my middle years and it's very difficult to witness the stuff about Batman and Audrey's, mm-hmm. about women, mm-hmm. about mental health. Mm-hmm. When we knew, my generation knew, we've always known and suddenly it's you know being being exhaled by the travelers have been shamed by Irish history mm. and by 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 mainstream. Of being in the world.
question. There are different ways of seeing the world mm-hmm. or hearing the world or whatever. There's different ways of being human. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's that difference is really important around who we are. I remember one of my sisters mm-hmm. telling me she only ever talked about gay people when when she became a mother. I don't know why that's because I had no idea what way my children but mm. I wanted to be there for them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, as farmers, we were over very homophobic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's the best thing in modern learning. Okay. And I think a lot of people are too lazy to think.
We're still doing this mission. We're still... Killed. We're still... Territorial. We're still... Full of... All kinds of... Superpower... Superpowers. Whether it's... Intellectual... Physical... Race... Ethnicity... Religious. Yeah. I don't have <laughs> <laughs> Just a final question, uh, because this this podcast program focuses around mental health. I wonder is there something that comes to mind to you around the stigma of mental health within the traveller community? If there if there is something that you think this this is one way in which we could kind of address the issue more effectively. I'm going to tell you about my own experience of difficulties with mental health. And then you might ask me the question again. Okay. When I was in my mid-twenties, I I tried to take my own life. I cut my breast. As my wrist and other parts of my body. Oh, God. And I went to hospital for one. And I remember that's not hospital, but it's just another institution. And I already know what I experienced. No, it wasn't. Arrest, or it wasn't in a very sterile environment mm-hmm. where the, the process was functions. You know, with all work in the back, functions. And I remember they put me on a process, and I had to come off. And I had this I didn't know myself. My body was just out. It was functionist, but functionist with no feelings. Isn't I'd rather be miserable than not feel as the years leading up to that myself were incredibly lonely, even though I had mental health in my family. Mm-hmm. Serious mental health. Of course, we didn't know that word. We just knew we had relations in the mental hospital. Okay. We didn't use the language of mental health. No, no, no. And when I talk about mental health, I don't just talk about, oh, I have it in the way. 
I'm too busy. I'm talking about it. I just don't see the image of my sense. Are we not sure that there is a place for you in the world? And for lots of slander. And you're going through a transition. The old ways, the new ways, globalizations, the popular culture. And then within that, if you're gay, if you're disabled, if you're trans, if you're a woman that's been told marriage is the only way out for you. Um, you can see why there's land. I would also say a broader level that when you are several generations of your community has experienced very severe oppressions, very severe poverty, very severe racism, and denial of who they are. You carry that in your genes mm-hmm. and you pass it down. And there's a certain characteristics that go with that. And if you look at the Maoris in New Zealand, the Aboriginal people in Australia, and some Irish travelers. Roma, we all have the same health stats. We all have huge rates of suicide or for women's power suicide, you know. I also said that young families and friendship groups. Wonder why you can't just put it together in order. Why you can't drink or drug yourself out of it. Why you can't just... Get on with it. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not. I don't like rehabilitation. You don't like rehabilitation? No. I don't like the idea that you have to be fixed. I like the idea that you have to be supported. Okay. And listen to. Mm-hmm. And understood. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea that dogs have certain dispositions.
natural pills will make it better. Mm-hmm. We'll fix it and we'll make him function. Yeah. Right? And then that's more damage than our own. I also think when we get the young man, you can collaborate with the young men in general and women and other males say, I'm hurt or you're hurting me or this is hurting me. This is hurting me. Show me a way to live with this. Don't do it with drugs. Don't do it with rehab or just show me a way or let me talk my way into this. Mm-hmm. And I also think that and I hope I don't offend anyone, but there's kind of hierarchies created of mental health. Okay. And uh, people who are really, really struggling and vulnerable, they're not ones. At the top of the hierarchy. People who are in institutions or in hospitals or who are heavily sedated. People in jail. And there's a whole kind of superficial. It's more like my mental health, right? Not about mental health generally. Well, it's more of a cat's chorus. Of course. Right, just, just before we go, we end by asking guests how do they take care of their own mental health? <laughs> Are there things you do on a consistent basis to. No. no. Um, I think Okay. I read. <laughs> music makes me really happy. What type of music? Oh, I'll start. Um, time alone. Is precious. Mm-hmm. Acknowledges that there are moments of misery. I like 
Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. <laughs> <Sincerely>. <laughs>